Welcome to Building Vesser, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes with our Quantum Spin Studios team, where we talk about our process of building a completely original franchise IP from scratch called World of Vesser. The seed of the idea for World of Vesser was born in the mind of our very own Mike McCarg, and our small team has been working the last year to blossom it into a fully realized world. Every piece of our world has been crafted in meticulous detail, from plate tectonics and climate maps, to the rise and fall of civilizations, to a 3,000 word original language, to the physics of the world's magic. And that magic is the topic of our episode today. I'm very excited to dive into our conversation, so let's get into it. I'm Victory Palmisano. I'm Ann Houck. I'm Mike McCarg. Welcome to Building Vesser. Okay, so when I think of magic, and I think when most people think of magic, we think of witches or wizards, uh, sorcerers, spells, magic wands. But in World of Vesser, magic works a very, very different way. You know, it's a force of nature. So, Mike, I would love if you could kind of frame for us fundamentally how the magic of World of Esser is different than, say, the magic of Harry Potter and how that impacts the stories and the characters inside the world. I mean, the first thing is no one among the Vahashoth, which is the, the people we're paying attention to in Vesser right now, would even, like, think of the word magic. You know, we describe things that are magical as things that are sort of supernatural, like a channeled energy that goes beyond the norm. And that doesn't really exist in Vesser. Emanation has been around certainly longer than people. <laughs> they know that. And so emanation is very, very different. There are no spells, you know. It's, it's uh, Well, I, I think maybe the easiest way to think about it would be to understand it as the Runja people do. If you go to worldofvesser.com, actually you can just go to vesser.com, V-E-S-S-E-R.com. Scroll down, there's a thing that says one people, three species. You're going to see a person's face, and then you're going to see like something that looks kind of like a bug. That's a Torfex. And then you're going to see this feathered thing, and that's uh, Runja. Runjas are you know somewhere in between uh, flightless large birds and, and dinosaurs. And they're the oldest civilization on the continent of Naja. So in the time before humans crossed over a land bridge from another continent, and the Runja had been pushed to the edges of the continent by the expanding colonies of the Torfex, the Runja lived mainly on river deltas. Uh, they are semi-aquatic. And so they would build dams really early. That's some of their earliest construction was to make deeper waters more consistent places for them to do their aquaculture, right? Most of their farming happens in the water. And it was from that metaphor that the notion of emanation began. Emanation is something with a pressure and energy behind it. And when a dam would rupture a bit, if you were to try to stop that water, it seemed like the harder you pushed against the escaping water, the harder it pushed back. Like once the water was free, it wanted to be free. And in fact, dams would sometimes even collapse if a small leak started. That still happens for us today. The water is being held back. And when it emerges, it is powerful and it is dangerous. So is emanation. Uh, although the Runja didn't understand where emanation comes from, what's on the other side of the dam, they understood that once that magic started, 
it did not want to stop. Now they're not they don't have the understanding of science or evolution or DNA that we do. They don't they don't have modern science at all. But they understand through their lived experience, through their innate wisdom, that life over time has prepared living things to deal with emanation. And those who really can't handle emanation, well, they tend to die young. Not everyone is imminent, so that's not a universal thing, but people become imminent at some point in their lives, can happen as a baby, can happen on your deathbed, most likely to happen in your teens, 20s, or early 30s, but any age is plausible. And that's emanation. That's this, this fundamental physical magic. You know, when we think of magic in most settings, we think of it as very cerebral. We kind of study a thing or very intuitive, like the force in Star Wars. In both cases, it's hard to start. Emanation is body-based, but hard to stop. And before people joined the Runja and the continent, they already had a theory of how emanation worked. And they think emanation can do three things. This is kind of a proto-scientific idea. Emanation can move, it can change, or it can conduct. Well, if we all know what it is to move something, right? Emanation can move matter. It can move solid things, liquid things, gas things. It can move energies. Now, moving energies, we get more into that conducting thing. If I'm conducting, I can conduct electricity. I can conduct heat energy, so if I'm conducting, I can make one place cold and another place hot by moving energy from one spot to another. And then changing is sort of the most magical of imminent potentials, is to turn one thing into another thing. So an alchemist in Runja society would have been quite successful turning lead into gold if they were imminent. Uh, which, you know, if you're into physics at all, changing elements from one thing to another is wildly powerful and also dangerous. So moving, changing, conducting, these things come together. And so understanding what emanation is and knowing that it wants to emerge, a person who has eminent ability is called emergent. They're an emergent person, capital E. And anything that has eminent ability even an inanimate object is lowercase e, emergent, right? So it is, it is both an adjective and a noun, emergent. And in the modern context, and the people of Ahashoth and, and Hash the Capital, some people become very, 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 very good at emanation. So there are something called a rite, the rite of Pashas, which you take on when you've been successful at, at studying and, and demonstrating your mastery of your eminent abilities. There are six of those rights. So you can be a first right, second right, third right, fourth right, fifth right, or sixth right candidate if you're an emergent person. Well, what are you a candidate for? You're a candidate to become one of the exalted. That is, there are only 24, and they are the seventh right emergent people. No longer candidates. They are now exalted. We talked about them on a previous episode. Kind of the rock star, war hero, NBA stars of Hesh, the only people allowed to go back to Hesh who are emergent. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. But that's that's where it came from. That's what the term means. And the magic is very different, frankly, also in how unique it is. Because when you cast a spell in Dungeons & Dragons or in Harry Potter, it's always that spell. It always looks the same. If you're in Star Wars and you force push someone, you've seen the films. It always looks the same. Someone's imminent abilities 
are as unique to them as your fingerprint is to you. So standing in the shoes of a listener who's trying to wrap their minds around it. By the way, I was so impressed. I was like, I'm going to put this in an anthropological text and it'll be very simple. And then I just realized that was like, <laughs> like emanation 101 on a college campus uh, day two. <laughs> anyway, it's good. It was awesome. Is it a lot about control then? Like with each right, each person is learning the specific way that their specific emanation works and how to master control if it's kind of like this uncontrollable thing racing through you when you first discover that you're eminent, then as you as you step through each rite of passage. Mm -hmm. We're probably going to change the name. We figured out in playtesting it sounds like we're saying rite of passage funny and we're not. Yeah. So <laughs> that term may not make it. Okay. It did make me giggle. Okay. So... Is it about control? Is that is that what it is? So by the time you're exalted, it's like you have a relationship with your emanation where you know it very intimately and you're able to control how you want it to work. There's a few things with it. One the the first the first thing you learn when you show that you are emergent is how to and th this is a way we've talked about it on the team a little bit is like building the wall inside of you to block out this uncontrollable force that if you let it will have you explode essentially something that mike was just talking about is that it's not an outside force of magic that's you know you're tapping into and pulling it's an inside force and so step one is okay how do we build up the defenses and then step two is a controlled, like, okay, let's poke a hole here and let out a little bit of emanation to do starter tasks. The first thing you learn is something called minor phenomena, which is essentially baby's first magic. It's <laughs> controlled, it's saved just a little, little tiny bit of emanation. And then as you go through further trainings and things like that, you learn how to open up more emanation and close that back up. So essentially you're building both your use of emanation and your defenses. And eventually what you see through the higher tier candidates and the people who have gone through more rights, they are biologically changed by their emanation. So the way they look when they first show their emergence is not the way they look if they become an exalted. That's where you start to see a little bit more of the relationship between a person and their emanation of like, it is not as sealed away it has fundamentally changed them on a cellular level and that's the experience that they're going through is learning how to use that at higher levels and do bigger things but do that in a safer manner you can think of it like this so you have imminent potential and you don't know it right imminent potential means you have you you could at some point manifest emanation and you could think of a person with imminent potential as a water hose who is connected to a spigot, but it's off. The water's not on, right? Well, then one day the valve opens a bit and water starts to come out. It's emanation. And once the valve opens, it never closes again. So the only way to stop the water is like put your thumb on the end of the hose. So if you if you ever stop paying attention, your thumb comes off, what happens? The water's going to come out. But even as you like, try, I don't know if you've ever done this, but like put your thumb on a water hose, it like sprays everywhere. It's actually really hard to stop the water completely. So now forget the water hose. It is more like a fire hose 
with the big giant valve that once it starts to open that can't be closed anymore and the only way you can stop it is to put your hand on the end of the fire hose well you know that's incredibly dangerous so as you gain rights what you're proving is it's safer for you to open the valve bigger without knocking your hand off your wrist so the rights mean you can handle more emanation without hurting yourself but also you're better at tamping it back down the 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 brake is more important than the gas in your training in fact when novices first arrive at the conservatory for training which is where eminent people in exile go to train they're not taught minor phenomena at first they're put in stressful situations to learn to not let their emanation out as those things occur and it's only after they demonstrate some degree of control that they get to learn to do something with emanation for the first time which is Anne told us is minor phenomena thank you that's super helpful and are you able to speak to as the art director you know you talked about how as you go through each right you know you're changed biologically on a cellular level and so you end up looking different how does this express itself through the visuals that you're creating yeah when we're looking at how emanation is expressed because it's a lived-in magic that comes from within and if two expeditioners learn the same expression of their emanation it can look wildly different and it can look different with the same person doing it two different times in different scenarios based on how they manipulate the magic from within and one thing that leads to is the ability to have a lot of diversity in the art as far as how emanation is shown but but one thing that needs to be sort of kept in mind as we're creating things is having it not look like a spell or a cantrip so keeping the the distance to where you can tell like it is something different and new coming from within but you can still have it look unique person to person to go behind the curtain into the game design a little bit each character is comprised of several choices that you make at character creation. You choose your type, your descriptor, and your focus. And one thing that allows is for characters who are the same type, which is like, not to get into too many like game-specific terms, but there's something like a bulwark, which is a very beefy, tanky thing. And your descriptors and focuses then alter that to make it unique per person. So if I am illustrating a wraith that is the very like roguish, sneaky, moves through the shadows, that wraith may also have the focus of blazes with radiance, which at first like can, can seem counterintuitive of like, how do I just depict someone who is being sneaky, blazing with radiance, but it, it comes down to like, you can do stuff like show, show them manipulating light to give themselves cover or distorting things and, and things like that. And as that person advances through the world and their emanation starts to change them, you can imagine scenarios where it's like, it's, it's hard to focus your eyes on them. Like they're flickering, changing, sort of floating between shadow and light. And there's, there's a lot of visual things to work with there. And that, that goes for every type, descriptor, focus, all of that. And even, even if you had two characters that choose the same path there, how they how they might express it is totally different also as talked about before we've got like scribes and sigil arcana which looks totally different as well that i'm sure we'll get into at some point but yeah i like to think of it like this so 
a buddy of mine, his name's Gar, is publicly known as the batting stance guy. So what he does is like study baseball players and then impersonate their batting stance. Gar is why I'm into baseball now, because he, he goes so hard, nerdy, studying baseball, not only like the math, but the ritual and the physiology. Of course, I got into that. And so now that I watch baseball, what I like to do is watch the batters. Why? Because every pitch is going to come in. It might come in at 75 miles an hour or 103 miles an hour. It might come straight. It might come straight and then move. It might wobble. And it all happens so fast. And so they have to get their entire neurokinesthetic response system ready to make decisions and enact them physically so fast. Like, it's, it's unimaginable. And the way they do that is a ritual. When you watch these guys, when they, and they all have their own. Now, they're all just going to swing a bat to hit a ball. But the way they get ready to swing, and in fact the way they swing... You could black blot their face out, like, you know, put one of those weird green <laughs> skin suits on them, and you could recognize these batters from how they get ready to bat. Emanation is like that. It, it involves such intense brain-body timing and interaction that each person has their own ritual for how they manifest emanation into the world, right? And then once they manifest it, it's unique to them. So let's imagine that we have someone who has a lens, you know, Bulwark and Lens and uh, Wraith and Arcus, all these, all these types that are in the game. They exist in the world. Those are like a job you can have. So let's imagine two lenses, and both of them use emanation to project fire into the world. But we can imagine that one person, in order to, to channel emanation, well, they have to like clench their fists together and then push them forward. And then, like, beams of fire shoot out of their hands because that's how they learn to do it. Then another person who's also a lens who mainly sets things on fire stands very still and stares at something. And then it just catches on fire. There are no beams of fire. So even though they're both doing fire stuff and they're both lenses, the way in which they do what they do is unique to them and their experiences and the way they learn to do things. And we think that's really fascinating, both from people creating media and stories in the setting, like books and TV shows and stuff like that, but also for people who play the game. Whatever you're imagining and how your character does something is valid and real and, and true because we designed the setting to support completely unique power fantasies. In episode one, Mike, I know you mentioned that one of the things that set you on this path of making the game was you couldn't quite fit some of the D&D &D set things to what you wanted to achieve. And I that that's something very important that you just pointed out here is there's the narrative space within all of the mechanics to make emanation look like how each individual person wants it to. Hmm. One of the visuals that always comes to mind for me is another one of the focuses shreds the walls of the world. Mm -hmm. And part of that is tearing through sort of reality, that sort of action. But you could have someone who's doing it with scalpel-like precision, almost slicing through 
Or you might have like a bold, brash character that's just straight up punching through. Just absolute rip and tear, brute force. And those are, on paper, mechanically the same thing. But you would know, like to, to the baseball analogy, if you looked in the room and saw those two people doing those two things, you'd be able to pick which one's which. Absolutely. It gives writers so much freedom, whether you're playing the game or you're writing for a character that makes it really, really fun. It provides so much freedom. We try to give uh, writers and players like catalogs of, of starting places for like common manifestations of how emergent people use their abilities. You know, if uh, if someone moves the earth, they have seismic powers. They can create little earthquakes and ripples in the ground and uh, little avalanches. And, and as they grow in power, big avalanches, right? <laughs> and so that's like one thing you could do. Someone else might uh, conduct heat. You know, they might uh, they, they might burn someone by drawing the energy towards them and then someone else gets cold. Or they might freeze someone and I freeze you and now over here that the lake is boiling because I'm pulling all the heat from you and I'm putting it over here. If I'm changing things, you can imagine someone who is imminent who they crystallize matter. That's what that's their deal. So I can turn the the tree next to you into crystals and then my my buddy can shoot it with an arrow and and now it shatters and now you got all these crystal shards in you. Or if I'm really getting good, I start turning you into a crystal. It'd be pretty hard to fight if you're being turned into crystals. You might create plasma, like superheat the air and, and electrically charge it into that exotic fourth state of matter that exists in the sun. You don't need a lot of imagination to see how that could be powerful and dangerous. You could, what if you uh, have learned to move photons so effectively that you can create photons in such tight confinement that they become nearly solid and energetic? Or, or what if you have specialized in emanation that relates to metabolic processes, which is a thing in the world. So that would mean you could be a healer. You could heal wounds. Uh, you could use emanation to repair the damage in someone's body or to evoke damage in their body because cancer is a metabolic disorder, right? So you could you could create problems, or you could you could uh, accelerate the growth of bacteria in their gut biome and make them really really sick. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, you could awaken growth. You could energize plants and cause them to grow rapidly by giving them more energy than they can get from the sun by by channeling emanation into them. Or what my maybe my favorite type of uh, emergent person is a helm. Helms specialize in the, the manipulation and awareness of people's thoughts and feelings. So maybe you read minds or maybe you spread terror. Maybe all of your practice is around evoking the fight or flight response in the minds of sentient, sapient, or conscious organisms. That's a pretty wild array of manifestations of emanation, and that is just scratching the surface of all the things we've already kind of built as a team. And what we love about the setting and the mechanics of the game and everything is if you tell us any, I mean, I haven't talked about turning invisible or telekinesis or anything. If you give us a vision for what a character can do, we can tell you how to do it with emanation and formalize it into something that like works. One of the things we really want emanation to do is for people enjoying stories is to make the story fun and believable so that people's abilities are consistent. You're, you're not seeing this uh, 
suddenly I've one shot the big villain and then the next scene, you know, I, I, I get mugged. And it's like, what, why? You know, we try to design it so the emanation, number one, the, the abilities are consistent and predictable and routine and grow over time. But two, you can try a big, amazing thing. There's just a risk and a cost to doing that. Yeah, there's so much here. The original intention with this episode was to dive into kind of all magics, which also include Sigil Arcana. Oh, I didn't know we were also going to do... Well, no, uh, we don't have time. Sigil That's going to be a different yeah. a different episode. We're going to stick with Emanation uh, Sigil Arcana today. deserves its own. Like, Absolutely. Its own. Yeah, yeah, it's cool enough. Yeah, 100%. I have a question. Some of the things that you're describing feel associated with morality, like if if you're going to invoke terror in someone... Mm-hmm. In the world that is world of Vassar, are we assigning a moral value to some of these acts of emanation? Uh, well, so yeah, the setting is designed to invite moral and philosophical inquiry. Mm-hmm. So let's remember, first of all, emanation is illegal in all forms anywhere in the territory of the Vahashoth. Unless you're exalted, then you, you just do whatever you want. Whatever the seven say you can do. Which is a very small number of people. 24. Yeah, 24. 24. Yeah, 24 exalted in the whole world at any one time. Yeah. A high turnover in that job. They, they die a lot fighting Titans, but uh, yeah, there's 24 at a time. So the only place you can do emanation is in the Garden of Suktu in exile. Or when you're sent out beyond the sigil barrier. We'll talk about sigil barriers when we talk about sigil arcana. When you're sent out into Alatheo, then all bets are off. And that's kind of on purpose. What You're trying to survive. The mortality rate in this job is incredibly high as an expeditioner. What is or isn't moral if you're trying to survive? And then also, different. there's no monolithic cultural value necessarily among the Vahashoth. Different people have different ideas about what is and is not ethical or appropriate in the use of emanation i mean there are people who think the best thing we could do is as soon as someone manifests imminent ability would be to humanely euthanize them there's other people who think emergent people should be in charge of society and everything in between so yeah that it, it's very much meant to invite people to imagine what is and is not moral um and but what i would say like a very common and this is out of necessity. These these, these people, the Vahashoth, they live on the razor's edge of extinction almost all the time. They tend to be a lot of moral utilitarians. Uh, morals and ethics are what we need them to be to achieve whatever our goal is. And our goals are, you know, very, very closely aligned with survival for myself and survival for, for our people. So to that end, the society was not built on anything like our earth that we live on there's no kind of religious framework that well so it's weird but there's no supernatural because there is magic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) we don't have to imagine what it would be like for there to be supernatural powers if i live in vesser they're just there so they're not supernatural they're natural there are religions right but people tend to worship things that they've actually seen like titans and since Titans tend to destroy things, consuming them to survive, a lot of the religions are kind of apocalyptic. Now, in the prior age, uh, in the age of ascendancy, 
when the Ascendant ruled the world, these kind of great, great, way more powerful than Exalted, also new Sigil Arcana, mage, warrior, monarchs. Some people worshipped the Ascendant as gods, but there aren't like theists or deists or, you know, those sort of like earth framings of, of theology, at least among the Vahasha, which are the people we, they seem to be the last people left on the continent of nausea wink <laughs> yeah, maybe i mean yeah <laughs> so very specific to the tabletop role-playing game exile you mentioned the garden of suktu and you mentioned these expeditions maybe Anne, you can give a little bit more color to if you play the game what that looks like in that setting yeah so when you're when you're playing the game you're playing as an expeditioner your your home base is in exile in the Garden of Suktu. That's where you will come back to when it's time to complete your next rites and all of that. And essentially, Mike's already gone into the sort of utilitarian way that the emergent are used, which is, you know, they're, they're assigned jobs mostly outside of the sigil barriers that are too dangerous for non-emergent to go do and complete. So that's the role you're taking on in the game. Of course, there's opportunities for plenty of social intrigue and stuff like that. But a lot of the tasks you're being given are things like, we want you to go explore and document this place and let us know what's out there. Or we need you to retrieve something from these ruins that's really important that we have so that we can look at it, replicate it essentially guarantee our survival a little bit more, but it's too dangerous for us to go get it. So we are going to send you the emergent out. And in in between, you'll encounter all sorts of stuff out in Alataic, whether it's, you know, creatures, emergent places, like thing, things like that. So that's the general framework is essentially you are being given missions, you can go out and explore. It's, of course, up to you and your party if you follow the directive of your mission. If you go somewhere else, it's just the initial framework as you're going through the game and it sets up kind of the game cycle. So for different tables, one thing that we're, that we're really trying to accomplish with the game is having different adventure cycles that then end up back in exile so that it allows for tables to be flexible if you've got a couple of weeks that you can't make it to the game. There's a built-in reason why the game can go on, why other people can play, and it allows for an easier time scheduling because as anyone who has ever played any tabletop role-playing game, the hardest combat you ever have to go through is aligning people's calendars. So one thing we wanted to make sure is like, oh, how do we make a game that not only is fun in setting, is really fun to play, but also kind of aligns with people's real lives? So that it is something that if you need it to be episodic, it can be. If you want it to be long form, it can be. And it's not down to the GM to engineer how that happens. It's baked into the fabric of the game. Yeah. Another episode we'll talk about, we'll, we'll dive deeper maybe into character creation. But I think this has been a really cool framing for people who are new to TTRPGs and imagining what it would be like to create a character with these various types of emanation. I know for me as a new as a newbie, the idea of kind of being given or, or choosing my type and my foci and stuff and then getting into the game, still feeling like unsure about, you know, can I make this thing a crystal or this person a crystal? Can I move this thing? And just, 
again, wanting to remind listeners who, who might be interested. I've had a lot of friends of mine text me saying like, oh my gosh, I've never done this before. This is making me want to play. And they're asking me a lot of questions about it, you know. And so if you're listening and you're interested, like don't be intimidated because you can ask these questions like as you're – this the character creation process itself is really fun and creative and you can ask a lot of questions and you can start to play the game and if you're not sure if you can do something or you want to do something that's an easy conversation to have with the game master and yeah even just hearing this I mean I've been immersed in this with you both and our team for the last year but I'm still wrapping my mind around how the magic works and and how a character could use could use their magic. And so this has just been really cool to continue to get a deeper understanding and also kind of maybe ask questions on behalf of a listener who might be wondering more about it. So there's so, so much more to explore, which we're going to keep doing in all these episodes. But I I actually have a listener question that came in. So I want to ask that. And as it is directed towards Anne, Abby Demers asks. First, they said, the visuals and art are stunning. Thank you very much, Abby. That is uh, due to our amazing art director, Anne. Abby says, I'd love to hear about how you create and conceptualize visuals for a people that aren't on earth, yet make it understandable for an audience that is. Ooh, I I really enjoy that question because I think it, it's one that we, if, if not ask ourselves continually, have at the forefront of our minds. Vesser is an Earth twin, which means that there are enough anchors for the audience to perceive things similar to the world, that there's a ton of space in between those to play with things that are unfamiliar and fantastical and make the world unique. I mean, there's there's trees and rivers and fungus, and while they might move or behave differently than things on Earth, like, you, you would recognize what a tree is. And so that's that provides enough of a framework for things to be understandable. Uh, when looking at architecture or fashion or really anything constructed in the world, there are several like criteria that have to be addressed and researched before I even like start sketching anything down or talking with an artist. The first is what problem is this solving? Even if it's you know something that exists for aesthetics or beauty, there's a core cause that that thing exists. So looking at like humans might use clothing for like sun protection or covering up from insects or things like that. And once that's sort of looked at, I I tend to go into the direction of how have we solved this problem on earth and looking like historically across different cultures to see different ways that that core problem has been addressed. There's changes, of course, based on like aesthetic preferences, evolutionary factors, biological factors, That even though Earth is human only, as far as, like, main sentient interacting species with, like, clothing and stuff, it provides the framework to start to imagine how that could interact in Vesser. So the the next sort of area I go into is, like, how would this be solved in a society where there are three distinct species? To stick with the idea of clothing, one of the things you might consider is how a tailor might stock items that could be used to clothe both human and runja, or or how that's that's met when you have people who are physiologically very different have different standards of clothing that they wear, and and things like that. Luckily, at least with clothing, the tour effects aren't much for that. And the nice thing is that it's very 
particularly with what we observe in like isolated earth cultures, people develop similar items. So it's it's not unreasonable to say like they would have pants because the the logic that would take you to, you know, fabric to cover up your legs isn't that much of a leap. So this this means that not only do the designs like hopefully make rational sense, there's no like non-functional sexy fantasy armor here. There will never be. No, there, there will, will never be, be non-functional oversexualized armor. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a toehold in the familiar. So then we can like once we have that general like skeletal framework, explore all the ways that the visuals of Vesser get to be unique and different from like materials to construction and all of that. And including those little details that the audience understands their capacity for understanding and essentially rolling with everything that's weird and new expands wildly. And Anne does such a good job because like you know, Ibanation is is fantastical, but grounded in realism, and so are is like the the things we we all make, and and makes especially real because you can see it. But like, if you think about a lot of the ways armor is done, not historically on Earth, but in modern media, like there there's a joke about boob armor. Mm-hmm. Um, like you would never want to put breasts individually in metal cups. And then, but you'll see in movies, not only are there individual breasts and metal cups, then there's like an open area over the sternum to be sexy, sexy, sexy. But if you imagine actual combat, if someone swings a sword at your boob cup and hits the wrong side, you've created a blade channel that moves the sword toward your sternum to kill you, right? And so we are pushing back hard against ridiculous tropes in modern media because uh, we don't want our characters to just be props or eye candy for audience enjoyment. They are, in the setting, real people trying to survive in a difficult world, and that just doesn't happen with boob armor. I mean, the the thing that always gets me the most about boob armor is what if you fall over? <laughs> like that, that's going to hurt. Uh, yeah, I and mean, you can't move. Like the other thing is, like if you look at armor historically, like it, it, there's always a compromise between protection and flexibility. Because if you can't move, doesn't matter how good the armor is, you give your adversary plenty of time to find a weak spot. So anyway, and does a great job, like considering all of the going far beyond what our uh, Alex and I like work through conceptually. Yeah, yeah. And that, that isn't to say there aren't, like, aesthetics or attraction or things like that in, in world. It just doesn't exist as something that doesn't exist on Earth. Like, of course, you know, people want to be pretty or might pick out a cool dress because they like the way it flatters them. Like, things like that. Right. If anything, fashion in, uh, in the Vahashoth might be a, a little more over the top than ours. Right. Got to keep up with the bird plumage. Right. Yeah, maybe on social we'll we'll post a little something about clothing next in honor of this of this episode. This has been great. This is fun. Thank you, Abby Demers, for asking that wonderful question. Listeners, if you have a question you want us to answer on the podcast, please go to our socials. You can find at World of Esser on all the platforms and put your questions in the comments. We will read them and be sure to answer. Thank you for listening, everyone. Join us next week for another episode of Building Vesser. And if you want to join our waitlist to be the first to know about upcoming events, go to vesser.com, V-E-S-S-E-R.com. 
and we'll see you next time. Bye. See you soon. Papua Arasu. 